you, everybody. There's probably going to be some people coming in a little bit late. I heard traffic was bad, is bad. It's Denver. It's not even snowing. I don't get it. But, hey, it's Friday. It's Friday. So who's excited about tonight? Friday. I am just a little bit. That's good. And some of y'all grew up Pentecostal. And those who didn't are like, what does that even mean? We're not talking about that tonight. But uh, my name is Ryan Miller, and I'm the founder and the co-director of Brew Theology. Janelle Apps Ramsey right over here, the better half, the co-director over here. And we do actually truly welcome you all here. And if this is your first time here and you're just checking it out, you're wondering if there are just a, a bunch of nerds who need another excuse to go out and drink beer at night. I actually had a, a friend's wife who thought that about me, and he started this thing because he probably just wants to drink more beer. That's not true. But there's something fun when you get craft beer and you get theology and you fuse it together. Am I right? A little bit of an amen there for some people. I know some of you are whiskey people, and that's okay. But what we like to do is we actually love, we love to brew theology. And we do that across the interfaith and the intergenerational spectrum. Uh, we are open and affirming to all people. We create communities, plural, through healthy, meaningful, and eclectic dialogue in pubs. Actually, starting next month, we'll have our 10th chapter in Brew Theology after two years, and that's pretty exciting. And we're publishing our 105th episode of the Brew Theology podcast this weekend. Dan the Man, the editor right there, he loves the attention. I know it. He hates me for it. Uh, yeah. And then every now and then, what we do is we, we do events like this. We partner with breweries, theologians, and this is the first... Who knows if there's going to be a second? We'll see how it goes. Open and relational theology extravaganza. So that's just a fun word to say, extravaganza. And I, if you're like one of my friends who saw me post this online recently, she was taken aback and she thought, Ryan's holding an open and relational marriage seminar tonight. <laughs> and hey, if that's you in here, you know, we love you. It's all good. There's probably a meetup for that and, you know, we can find it for you. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to go into details about open and relational. Uh, there's going to be seven theologians coming up here tonight and talk about, talking about their particulars within that paradigm. And that, and that, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small field and a big field at the same time. Uh, but to start off on a personal note, it was January of 2006, and I was on a retreat. I had been married for about four and a half years at that point in my late 20s, and I got a phone call from my wife, and she said, as she's crying, which is very rare, that uh, I was at the doctor and I've got a heart defect. And so I, I went home and then there was more doctor's appointments and then we realized that her valve had expanded and four years later she did have open heart surgery to repair that. But needless to say, from January 2006, that entire year it changed the trajectory of my life, of our family, and somebody who was raised in the Christian household where God had all things planned out and was sovereign and good, and God works for those who love him and are called according to his purposes, and that everything happens for a reason. All that stuff that I thought I knew, having been an undergrad re religious major, having gone to seminary, having been a pastor at that point for eight years, all that didn't make sense anymore. So then I began to explore this open and relational framework. Fast forward to... 2012, our really good family friends, they had a, uh, a one-year-old and the wife was pregnant with a child. And she falls down the steps, the baby is okay, but when they looked at her fracture, they realized that there wasn't just a fracture, that she had cancer. So then there was two years of her battling with cancer. She dies two years later, leaving my buddy with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And then two years ago, another good friend of mine passed with pancreatic cancer, leaving a widow 
with a four-year-old and a two-month-old. And I say all that uh, not to start the night off heavy and gloomy, but I think that we can all say, yes, I've heard these stories. That's been my family. Those have been my friends. We're all interconnected in this thing called life in the universe. Uh, And it was within the last 10 years that I began to open myself up to an open and relational framework, everything from open theism to process theology. And it didn't just save my faith. It actually made it more robust and more dynamic. And so I don't know what your story is tonight, because I think that the, the open and relational framework is for everybody from those who are Christian and Jew and Muslim and Buddhist and atheist. But I think there's something very real and very tangible about it. And I do believe that the speakers who are coming up tonight have something of a message of hope in the midst of whatever you're going through in your life, whatever you have gone through. And I, I think there's something about it, again, where you're that train, that train wreck where theology and real life comes together. I go, this at least gives me hope. And if you're saying, he sounds like he's proselytizing, it's because I am a little bit. It's okay, Dan, right? Just a little bit. There's a few. Uh, and at the end of the night, too, if you're like, man, I didn't agree with anything these speakers had to say, that's fine. We, we, we live in this place of disagreement all the time in these settings. So here's how tonight's going to work. It's going to be like theological speed dating. Uh, yeah, it really is, except for that you actually have like a, a more of a a framework of chosenness in this because we've chosen the speakers. So it's a little bit process and it's still a little bit predestined Calvinist, so to speak. So I'm just going to say, so within this theological speed dating, they'll have 15 minutes to present. And then after the first three speakers, what's going to happen is we're going to have them come up here for the first panel. So during that time, the questions will be, if you go on Facebook to our Brew Theology page and go to the open and relational you know, theology extravaganza deal, and you actually check into that, and then you start writing your questions. That's how we're going to get them. If you're not on Facebook, just use the sheets of paper, grab Janelle or myself, and we'll get to as many questions as we can within 25 minutes with three different speakers. So, And if your question did not get asked or answered at all, I will do you a favor and at least email them on the side, and you may get an answer from them. Is that cool? All right, who's ready? We're, we, we got... We're doing good. It's 7-Eleven. So without further ado, this is the man that introduced many of you all a year and a half to process theology back at Platte Park Brewing. He's, a, he's, he's our hometown hero. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to hype him up right now. <laughs> we have Dr. Jason Whitehead from the Olive School of Theology. So Jason, you were up first, my man. Hold it like an ice cream cone, right? Okay. Um, so I got a text from my spouse on the way in here tonight that said, you plus beer equals stick to the script, um, because I get kind of rambly as a preacher uh, when that happens from time to time. So I, I have my script up here, and I'm going to do my best to stick to it and stay away from the feedback. Um, so what I want to talk to you about tonight uh, is a question that has been on my mind for a long, long time, and it, and it forms in part the basis of why I did the theological work I did, which is, um, who are we that the divine is mindful of us? Who are we and why do we matter at the end of the day? And so what I'm going to work out with, with all of you tonight is new stuff for me. I've never talked about this in public before, especially with beer. Um, and in fact, I've never kind of put all this together into one presentation before. So you're getting something that I'm still trying to figure out at the same time. So if you have questions, they're probably the same questions that I have. 
to, to some extent. And so to introduce that at, at the end of the day here, to introduce that, I, I want us to, to wade into two smelly, hot, yucky piles of ideas. And that is the idea that there is some kind of inner true self and the idea that there is some kind of substantive soul. That, that we have these things within us that are fixed or that are a part of, our, of who we are that we have to find. And so I want to wade into those two things and talk about what I think might be a process response to that. So basically, at the end of the day, to, to use the big 25-cent words that I paid for a PhD for, is we're going to work on a process theological anthropology. We're going to wonder about who are we from a process perspective that God even cares, or the divine even cares. So let's go to that first pile, the, the true self here. Now, this is a, a part for me um, that comes out of a history of kind of spirituality where, you know, I would go to a retreat and they say, we're going we're gonna to peel back the layers of these onions so that you can see really who you are, or more importantly, who you were meant to be in the divine imagination, to, to slough off all the crap that you have placed upon yourself so that you can live authentically into that true self. By my characterization of that, you can kind of understand how I feel about that particular notion. And, and I have a background in therapy as well. And so part of this comes out of an idea of a theory of change. So to believe in this, and I'm going to stick to my script here for a second, um, to believe in this kind of true self, this inner self, it means that we deny certain identities or experiences. We hold them as good or bad. We create binaries about them. They are my true self, not my true self at the end of the day. And so by doing something like this, we lose what's called psychological flexibility. And that's the ability to handle crisis, the ability to deal with stress, to deal with anxiety, to deal with trauma. And so we hold fast to this core identity, this true self that knows exactly how we feel about things and exactly who we are in the world, and we can't respond. We can't react because we're, we're stuck in that, that space. And with that, with that loss of psychological flexibility, with that search for that true self, we lose the ability to be responsive, to be fluid in how we identify in spaces. We lose the ability to change, or at least the ability to see change as an important part of what it means to become human. 
So that's this first pile. Now this second pile that we might want to scrape off the bottom of our favorite tennis shoes is this idea of the soul. Um, I am resigned to the fact that I will live the rest of my life without a soul. Don't need it, don't want it, don't care about it. See, the, the, diff the difficulty that I have with this idea of the soul is that once you name something, it becomes an object. And once you objectify something, it can be dehumanized, it can cause separation, it can be oppressed, it can be marginalized, it can separate us relationally. And the way that we have constructed the soul in our popular forms of religion today is as a litmus test for who is in or out, who is a part of a community and who is not, who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. It all depends on the soul. And if all is well with your soul, then I have no impetus to relate to you anymore because I've done my work at the end of the day. You're saved. Where, to me, at the end of the day, where is the responsibility to one another, the accountability relationally to one another, if what we're looking at is something that is transactional? And that can extend beyond just Christian religion or other spaces like that, to where we look at somebody, well, you're okay, then I don't need to check in on you. I don't need to relate further to you because I've sent my card because your spouse died. And that card conveyed that your soul should be okay by now because my soul was okay with sending that. And so our relationships become transactional at the end of the day. So I'm not gonna leave you empty-handed. I wanna talk about something in their place, in both of these places. So I come to you today as a father, a son, a brother, a therapist, a professor. I come to you as a career counselor, as a former landscaper, as someone who likes beer. So I ask you, somewhat rhetorically because we don't have time, which of these identities is my true self? Which one of these is the most core to who I am at the end of the day? Beer, yes, Ryan, I see that. Um, <laughs> we all have our, our priorities. I didn't say that. Um, the answer is all of them are important. They all matter. I'm not coming up here acting like I'm your father. I'm coming up here with a particular identity at this particular time, at this particular present moment and present space. A nervous one because I'm doing something new. You can see the handshake when I hold the papers, especially. But a familiar one because it's a familiar space, so I'm utilizing portions of other identities to be in this space with this identity. And so what I would propose to you is that what we would call a self is really just a container of identities. 
this embodied piece of who I am is a complex kind of web of hastily sewn together identities. And we trot some of them out in spaces and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And if we can begin to think of ourselves in this complexity, rather than just always searching for something that is virginal, for lack of a better word, that's untouched, unsullied by the world, then we can see that within those spaces there are possibilities for who we might be, despite or because of what we have experienced. Whether it's pain or trauma or violence or whether it's care or love or that, that what begins to happen is we begin to understand that our experiences matter because they form our identities, but that our identities are changeable, they're malleable, that there are possibilities for new things despite maybe what we have experienced, and, and we were talking earlier, despite the habits that we've cultivated to feel safe in a routine. And, and this, to me, is how we begin to understand what a process person is. It, it's a person that recognizes the, the tentativeness of who they are in a particular moment or a particular space. Because as we interact with one another, we change. As we perform an identity and receive back feedback from someone, we shift. You start falling asleep, I start speaking louder. Little things, little subtle things happen that shift our identities and construct them together in relationship. And so, let's move to the soul for a second, and why I don't like it. Um, the soul has been used as this opportunity to tell you what terrible people you are. It's this grimy, filth-covered little baby coal inside of you, whatever the heck somebody used to describe it, to tell you how you don't live up. It's been objectified. And as an object, again, dehumanized, oppressed, marginalized, seen as less than. And so what I want to propose in its stead is what I would call the activity of soulfulness. So rather than think about some kind of substance within us, that, that the God within us, as we often talk about with the soul, this is where we directly access God, that I want you to think about the God between us, the divine between us, and begin to think instead of soulfulness as an activity, a relational space where we honor the presence of the divine between us in relationship. And so rather than worrying about, you know, are you saved or are you, is your soul okay? It's how do I relate to you in a way that mediates the presence of something divine that connects us? 
And so I think process theology really lends itself to this idea of activity, and especially relational activity. This idea that what we say and who we are and what we perform and what we do matters. That, that it matters how I respond and react. Because we're performing and negotiating identities. And if we negotiate them with the understanding that the divine lives between us, then it's less about transaction and more about relation. It's not about what do I get or what do I give, but how am I with? And so what I'm beginning to kind of think and what I'm beginning to kind of play with is this idea of radical interdependence. That what matters at the end of the day is how we come together and do something. Because that's where we get feedback about our identities and where we perform well and don't perform well. Where we hurt, where we heal, where we soothe, where we cause violence. And we all do it. And this idea that we are interdependent to mediate this presence at times, to, to help one another see when the divine is, is with us and when we recognize how people perform that in spaces, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be honest, to tell the truth, to feel, to hope, to love, to think, and to be creative and responsive together in this space. And so I came up with this little bit for me when I was, was writing about it of, and those of you may know the adage, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And that's what I think we are that we matter. So something old carry with us memories. Something new, we have the capacity to imagine amazing things. Something borrowed, we relate, we learn from one another, we are in this together in a way that we teach and love and hopefully are with one another. Something blue, we are all emotional people and we carry with those the thoughts and the ideas and the experiences that go with those emotions. Neuroscience at the end of the day is gonna tell us that an emotional memory is the most powerful kind of memory in our lives. It's the story that comes up when we start getting scared. We start getting angry. We, we, these emotional memories, they're, they, you know, over time, easiest to recall, last the longest, okay? And they come up super quick. And so we start performing an identity sometimes before we're even thinking about it. And so for me as, as a therapist and, and one of the identities that I wear, those, that emotional life is really important at the end of the day because we can really piss each other off. And how we mediate that presence and how we understand the 
power we have with other people matters. And so for me, in the end, I am, and you are, absolutely nothing without we are. And so it doesn't mean that everything's going to be great. I wrote this part down. Doesn't mean that we're going to make the right decisions all the time. It doesn't mean that we're even going to live out the right identities at the right time. And it certainly doesn't mean that we're going to honor that divine that dwells between us. But what it does mean is that when we step in a pile of shit, there's the opportunity to clean it off and try again. And the opportunity to to really see ourselves as possibilities rather than probabilities. And that is what I think it means to be a human becoming in a process lens. So thank you for your attention and time. All right, thank you so much. Another round of applause quick. All right. If you have any questions that were stirred up by what Jason presented, please write those down or add them to Facebook and we'll bring them up at the panel. Um, We do have a surprise for you. There are now cookies on the back table that Sarah Brown made for us and they're awesome. So if you get ready, you need a little bite to eat, sneak over, grab a, a beer cookie. They're ready for you. Thank you so much for doing that. And you do this professionally, right? Yeah, so if you need cookies, cakes, cupcakes, talk to Sarah. She's got you covered. Um, next up is Elaine Padilla. And Elaine was one of the authors in the book that I recently edited called Women Experiencing Faith. And so, uh, so you'll, you might find this funny. Um, I, didn't, I, I had their names and email addresses, and we did our essays, and I didn't always have their bio in front of me. <laughs> And I'm reading her essay, and I'm like, wait, this is process thought. I recognize this. And so I I looked at her bio and found out that is exactly what she does, and so invited her to join us um, to come and speak. So Elaine, if you would like to come. So thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, Not long ago, I completed a project on contentment and happiness. And shortly after I completed that project, I found myself immersed in a, in a life uh, that had to face many crises. But despite that, I felt like um, much of what I had written and researched on still really had, uh, had something to say about my predicament and about my life, and still contentment and happiness was very much what was undergirding everything that, were, that I was going through. And so I began to ask myself the question, uh, how can a person, or how can we, uh, knowing that we are basically, uh, in, in some basic, you know, in some 
uh, foundational way uh, seeking contentment in life and seeking happiness. The pursuit of happiness actually is not just something abstract. It's truly something that that not only humans but also all creatures or living creatures are are in pursuit of our contentment and life and flourishing and well-being, enjoyment is something that the whole of creation actually is undergoing at all times. And uh, but how how can I explain that or express that when when facing a tragedy, when tragedy strikes? Um, when my sister was going to college, she was driving with my cousin and they were driving and they were going just to college and a kid uh, that was only 16 years old, he had no driver's license, decided to take his father's car and drive it and he ran off a red light and hit my sister and my cousin and there he was. My sister's life was changed from then on. And when tragedy strikes in our lives, you know, what, how can I explain enjoyment and contentment to, you know, uh, to such a person, and or, or how can I speak about it in such a situation? And so, I began to ask these questions, and I felt myself um, seeking for answers, because truly, despite that fact, despite the fact that the whole of creation and the whole of life is seeking contentment, we do find ourselves in amidst tragedy, and uh, those responses are are truly valid and we cannot do so from a detached you know, perspective. We have to immerse ourselves in such situations and seek to really provide the best answers possible. Uh, we, we see sometimes ourselves in, in, under such condi conditions and we look at ourselves in the mirror and we might not recognize ourselves because we might see ourselves disfigured, we might see ourselves um, dismembered uh, because of tragedy, whether it is psychologically or whether it is physically, tragedy can truly uh, change the whole way in which we see ourselves and can see our future as well. So how, um, how is it that we can uh, still seek contentment and seek flourishing as we are facing tragedy? Whitehead uh, talks about uh, these types of processes as the, the, I'm sorry, and I'm going to quote, the revolts of destructive evil, end quote, that normally result from impulses for pure self-regard. At times we find ourselves in the path of the pure self-regard of another person, or at times we have been the ones who have had that pure self-regard and create circumstances that can be tragic as well. Destruction, negation of life, nothingness, can be the outcome of a good, well intention. And even so, we can see that the contrasts that are created by these situations, uh, while we are not necessarily finding them, finding pleasure in them, and why they are not something that we will look for, uh, they do create uh, something in our lives that spur us towards the new, that spur us towards uh, some new search reality. Uh, and I don't know how to explain it, but it is the manner in which we, and it's possible that it is related to what was just explained, it is the manner in which we become ma malleable and flexible 
and in which we are able to face and confront a new reality in a new way. It is beyond adaptation and it's beyond uh, just mere survival. It is truly a desire for thriving amidst uh, what Whitehead would call wreckage. And none of us are searching for a wreckage. None of us are searching for a car crash. But when we find ourselves in the midst of it, what is our response? Uh, for many of us, the response is to see uh, how beautiful and how, how beauty or what, what type of beauty can come out of that event. Um, how, how monstrosities can be turned into, into uh, beautiful shapings and, shapings and forms. Um, it is how we don't allow just life to shape and form us, but how we also press against life and press against the form to shape it. So I would say that while we are not seeking for wreckage and while we are never seeking for tragedy, when it finds us, it is a mess there that we can find, that where we can create possibilities and pockets of salvation or pockets where we co-create realities that become innovative, that are filled with novelty, and that, are, that can be filled even with adventure. I think that this is what, one of the reasons why, or one of the ways in which we can describe our, or what we can point to as the Galilean vision that, that Whitehead talks about. We sometimes think that the, the Galilean vision is, is just uh, a mere sense of solidarity of the Christ with us. Uh, a sense of accompaniment, a sense of the Christ walking with us, the sense of the Christ suffering with us. But the Galilean vision is also how the Christ and the cross represents that creation out of nothingness. The creation out of nothingness, uh, for instance, can go, uh, we can look into the book of John, uh, John 1.1, and we can think also of Genesis 1.1, and how it is the cross and the word are related in the sense that how nothingness can be a place for creation. How that inky blackness, that inky messiness of of life, of that earthen blackness that is a part of the created order can be out of which uh, life can be shaped and formed. Uh, when Christian thinkers look back at the cross, especially Eber, Eberhard Jungle, he uh, talks about how, the, how creation and the cross are two, technically two simultaneous events because it is at the point in which God, God's self, is wrestling with nothingness. It is the point at which God, God's self, is wrestling with death and bringing life from death. Um, so I see um, that also, and, and I see that Galilean vision um, that for him is like a flicker. He talks about it being flicker and being uncertain. Is that flicker of the Galilean vision in our reality. And it is not a, an intense flame for Whitehead. It is not a powerful flame that transforms and changes by might and power. But on the other hand, it's something very fragile. And it's something that is almost unrecognizable. And so to create 
out of nothing is almost to create out of the, the parts and the aspects of your own self that are almost dying. You know, it's almost like the breath of life is almost coming out of when you have hardly no breath to give out. Consider how uh, the spirit was uh, hovering over the waters and the waters were, and, and the earth was, you know, in chaos in some ways. Uh, it is in some ways, it is in a similar manner in which we can experience that Galilean ingredient in us, uh, that cross in us, uh, that passage of from nothingness to somethingness, uh, when we can say uh, yes uh, to the somethingness, that it is a part of the thingness of the nothingness. I don't know how to explain it, but it is, um, it is the way in which uh, uh, there is a yes to life, despite the many nothingness and the crosses that we experience. So what would the terrorized soul and tortured, naked, bruised, and disabled body hanging on the cross signify? What would the dialectic dialectic of creative love of the cross mean for those who have endured the marks of neocolonization, exploitation, sexism, racism, classism, ableism, ethnocentrism, and all the many who struggle between nothingness and possibilities. So that here I'm not only talking about our own personal struggles, but I'm also talking about the major aspects in society that that others also struggle with that are tragic and they are caught into. Uh, and I have only one minute and I haven't even begun to talk about what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I cannot believe it. Really? Only one minute? Are you sure? Okay. Um, so let me just close with these. The beautiful, in some ways, uh, we can say that depends on that spontaneity of the creative event, despite the fact that it is bringing contrast, or as a result of it bringing contrast, uh, it actually, it is because uh, there, are, there is a positive discordance of events that the beautiful can be experienced, that the beautiful can result. Uh, despite the risk of deformity and disfiguration, um, it is because the beautiful can be the opposite of anesthesia and exclusion. It is because we do seek to live a life that is to its fullness. It is because we actually take risks and that we actually go out beyond ourselves. Uh, that because we don't surrender to the, the tomb itself, that we can experience the beautiful. I close with this, with beauty, that which is perceived as evil within the truth of the wreckage, because there is a truth to it that cannot be denied. One can grasp the, grasp the potentiality of being and can tenderly and patiently co-save oneself in the embrace of the many shapes that the figure is taking as a result of life's wreckage. Thank you very much, Elaine. And, uh, by the way, Dan had a, a great point. This is you, know, you have to you have to be okay with this. You you were speaking. If you would like to give away your notes, okay, because it's a lot to digest in one night. And I say give away, that just sounds like man, give away my notes. I mean, somebody could take that and do whatever with it. But it it, it may be nice. So if you're willing, you can email me later, and then I can give these out to the rest of the group. And I'm going to remind you all. I have two questions online. Keep posting online, and if you have any slips of paper, 
hand them to Janelle. You could even pass them down the row if you have any, because after this next speaker, we're going to have them come on up and we'll do a 25 minute Q&A. Our next speaker is the person that I like to call our local process guru, and he, he probably is like rolling his eyes at me. Thanks, Ryan. Stephen has meant a lot to this community, and we met several years back. He's a lot of things, uh, and not just a handsome man with a beard. So, Stephen, come on up. Thanks. I'll be happy to share my extensive notes with anybody that would <laughs> like them afterwards. Uh, I'd like to take a minute first and acknowledge the land that we're on, right? This is land that belonged to the Ute. It didn't belong to them. But they existed within the territory. The Ute people, the Arapaho, and the Cheyenne people traveled this land before there were colonizers here. And I think it's important for us to be talking about relational ways of being to acknowledge the peoples who were here in relationship with other humans and with the non-humans. Uh, so I just wanted to acknowledge that. I spent a lot of time not coming up with what made sense for me to talk about tonight. And that's probably the most processed thing I could do. And it's a really good way to get off the hook. But I realized what I really want to talk about is bacteria and plants because I'm a vegetable farmer. Um, and although I knew about open and relational theology while I was working as a pastor, it didn't make sense to me until I was farming. Because there was a part of it that was abstract, it was analytical, it was cognitive. And I didn't have a way to move it into my actual being, the physicalness of who I am, that still almost continued to make me think that the spiritual part was a different part from my actual lived being. So we'll do a little plant physiology, a little bacteriology. See, I, I, when I, I lost my job as a pastor, uh, I found out in December of 2006 that I wouldn't have a job. I was also planning on getting married in uh, March of 2007. So that was fun, getting married with all of a sudden no job. I needed to do something. Uh, and so I was still trying to figure out what to do. And farming, surprisingly, made a lot of sense for me, even though I didn't grow up doing that. I didn't have family that did that. So I knew that if I was going to learn how to farm, I had two options. One, I could convince my wife to go intern my way to learning how to farm, and we could live in a yurt somewhere on the back of some random person's farm. That seemed like a less viable way to start a marriage. Uh, the other thing was that I really enjoyed teaching, and so I thought, okay, I want to go back, I want to, go back to school, I'll get a degree in horticulture and food crop production so that I could learn more more information that I might just learn on the farm. So what's interesting, I went to, a land, I went to CSU, which is a land-grant university, um, and what's interesting is that within the land-grant universities today, we still talk about plants as if they're just, they're, they're just objects. They're just plants, right? Soil is just soil. It's inert matter. Plants are slightly better than inert matter, but they're still more or less 
just blobs of cells that do what we want them to. And in fact, a lot of our agriculture today is based on the fact that we can force our will upon plants to do what we want, we as, we as humans. So a lot of what I learned was this way of you take this particular fertilizer, you put it in, in proximity to the plant, and you use a type of fertilizer that the plant doesn't have a choice in. It kind of just, by, by the function of the plant, it draws it up into the plant cells, and the plant then grows, and it hopefully grows the right types of the plant parts that we want, whether it's the grain, the seed head, or flowers, or fruit, or uh, vines, whatever. So we can do all of that. We can force, humans can force their will onto plants so that we then get, bless you, we then get what we want out of it. But there's this alternative view of agriculture which says, no, actually plants can play a vital role in this process. And so as I was learning to farm, I had these, very, these two very different views of life going on. One that said we can just give our, you know, we can exert our will over the less dominant forms of matter in the world. We can just force feed plants until they give us what, they, what we want them to give us. Or this alternative view of agriculture, which is only alternative to us modern people, it's a pretty old form, that says if we allow and encourage relationships to exist at the plant level, at the soil level, then life will flourish because we're giving, we're providing opportunity for that life to exist. So I had just left my position at a church and that caused a pretty heavy existential crisis going, I don't know what to do. Here I am now farming instead of working as a pastor, which is what I thought I was going to do for a long time. And I was back doing very physical work with non-humans. And I was having the chance to see that both of these ways of thinking about agriculture could exist simultaneously. I could exert my will over these plants and get a big yield of what I wanted. Or I could provide and participate in the relationships that exist on the farm and a yield would also be provided. See, what's interesting is that, I'm going to try not to get too technical here, uh, but plant, so there's this area around the plant roots in the soil that's called the rhizosphere. It's like a millimeter thick around every little root hair. And most plants, most, most plants have as much root mass below the soil as they do a, like stems and branches and things above. So if you look at a tree, it probably has as much root mass below ground as it does above. Same thing with the tomato plant, same thing with most plants. And that millimeter all around the roots has this really interesting opportunity. There's bacteria that live just in that root space. And the role of that bacteria is to break down soil and then hand it to the plants. So if, that, if the mineral content in the soil is what the plant needs, then that bacteria actually breaks down the soil and hands it to the plant. This relationship happens and is happening almost constantly. But we've decided, we in the, the Western mechanized 
worldview have decided, oh, this doesn't happen fast enough. So we're gonna exert our will over the plants and we're gonna force feed it so that it would get it what yield we want. But we don't need to do that if we allow the relationship to exist. And so here I am out on the farm field, away from a church building, thinking about the divine and the relationship of whatever is more than human or non-human, seeing this played out and thinking, man, this feels so real, right? I have an opportunity in my life with my, my wife, with my children, with my friends, with the guy that flipped me off as I was driving here because apparently I was driving not close enough to the person in front of me. He wanted me even closer, right? There's these constant relationships where we have the ability to overexert our will onto somebody else or to allow that relationship to exist by acknowledging that there is life there. See, I, didn't necess- I wasn't necessarily willing to say I thought that the rest of the, the or that the non-human world were just inert matter in the background of human existence. But a lot of my theology actually acted that way. I didn't really think, I didn't really act as though the divine cared about the trees or the salmon in the river or the groundhogs. And that one's still a tough one for me to figure out. It was a really anthropocentric view of how the world works, that my relationship with the divine or the divine's relationship with the world is really first and primary for the sake of humans. But all of a sudden, sitting in the, working on the farm, realizing that, oh, these relationships exist without human intervention. So maybe what exists, whatever we call God, whatever we call the divine source, whatever language we wanna use, maybe there's compassion and interest and intrigue for the non-human as well. So I started really diving into what does it mean for these relationships to exist? And, and Jason had, uh, I love the way that you had said like that the, the divine exists in the between, like that relational aspect is, is actually what makes life happen. Right? It's the fact that we're able to relate to each other, human to human, not that we're completely separate, that our influence lingers between us when we're together and it lingers even more when we're apart. We're not individual separate boxes that kind of bump into each other but don't leave any mark. Sometimes it'd be nice if that were actually the case when we have those people that irritate us for no, like we, they just irritate the shit out of us. And we don't, it'd be nice if we could just section that off and say, that's not going to affect me, but we're affected by the world around us. We're affected by our human relationships and we're affected by our relationship to the non-human as well. Um, and, and because we're affected by, because I was realizing how affected I was by my relationships with the non-human, I realized that if there was a divine And if the divine cared, was mindful about me, and if my relationships were affected by the non-human world, then maybe that was just as important to the divine. The theology that I grew up with didn't really have space for that. The non-human world was really just a backdrop to human existence. So this was really opening up a new possibility for me and a new way to understand that these relationships between 
were really a, actually a primary thing that relationship, uh, whether it's from human to human or human, or human to non-human or non-human to non-human is actually primary. It is the basis for existence. Without that relationship, there is nothing. And as I was exploring all of this, I stumbled across Alfred North Whitehead's process thought and was like, oh, somebody's, oh, it's nice that somebody else has already written about this. Um, and, uh, and, and that's a lot of what was really intriguing to me is that he was saying that, no, this, this physical body is not what's most primary. Actually, the way that relationships are happening is what's moving life along. And this relationship between subjects, these forms of existence that are influencing each other, that are in relationship with each other, that move together and, and share space over time really became something that was, was really startling to me. And, I, and there was one point in 2015 where I realized that I was back up in my head with all of this. And I had learned all of the fun uh, process words, the 25 cent words. And I had uh, my favorite, Elaine, you reminded me of my favorite Whitehead quote, which is in Adventures and Idea, which is the teleology of the universe is directed toward the production of beauty. Right? So I, I memorized all of these things, but I realized I was back up in my head and I wasn't in my, in my body, in these relationships. So I remember there was, it was in March of 2015, I said, okay, I'm gonna just start acting as if this whole process way of relating to the world around me is real. And what's different now? What's different when I actually think that my choices are influencing other people's choices? What's different to live in a way where we think that um, not just humans, but our non-human kin experience. Not just experience our experiencing, but our experiencing for themselves. How do I then move in the world knowing that others exist? And not just in others that are a backdrop to my life, but are also the center of their own life, right? We're in this constant state of flux, constant state of movement. And it's really overwhelming. It's really overwhelming to realize that every decision that I make influences the world around me. And it sent me into another existential crisis, realizing how much violence I caused to the world around me on a continual basis. But I also realized that there was a tremendous amount of hope in it because my decisions do impact other people but it's also going in to take shape at what is possible, which means that every, what I would consider positive action in the world, every place of compassion, every place of love, every place of beauty that I can insert into the world is going in to shape other people's way of understanding the world. And they're doing that also for me. For me, one of my greatest teachers these days is the non-human world. Um, and it's a really strange place to be because I grew up with a theology where that couldn't and shouldn't be the case. Um, 
I may most likely be considered an animist now, which just means I think that life exists beyond humans. Um, but to see the way that, that the divine, if I, I don't even like using that word, to be honest. It, I don't know what it means. But the, the way to see that life exists beyond me, beyond my species, comes into interplay, this, this life that I get to experience is pretty exciting. I wanna say one other thing and then I'm, I'm, I had oral surgery on Monday, so I'm gonna use that as my excuse now because I feel like hmm, a little, uh, I haven't had too much pain pills, but feeling it. Uh, language really makes a difference when you're shifting the way that you start to see and be in the world. Um, our language, the English language, is pretty noun-dominant. And as a result, when our language is noun-dominant, we start to see the world as nouns. That's kind of fixed objects. There's a number of other languages, particularly uh, a, a number of the indigenous languages to this continent, where verbs are their primary words. So when you think of a tree is a word we might use to describe a tree as a noun, the, but that tree is in a constant state of movement and becoming. There's ways at which a tree can be talked about as a tree at dusk versus a tree in the midday, a tree when it's raining and a tree when it snows, the way that the light hits a tree in a particular way and this, this issue of language is really interesting because, because it, the, if, if our language allowed for more verbs, we're recognizing that all of these nouns, these things that we think are things and nouns, if we gave them verb status, would be easier for us to allow, allow us to see that things are in a constant state of movement, a constant state of becoming. And so the tree that I go visit, where the coyote lays down and eats near my house, is constantly changing. And it is constantly experiencing the world, just as that coyote that comes to visit and sit underneath the tree is experiencing the world. And as the coyote leaves its kill at the base of the tree, and that kill slowly decomposes and becomes new life, that then comes into the tree, this is also a state of becoming that's happening. And if I think that the divine has more care for me in my human state of becoming than the soil bacteria which feed the tree, which bring oxygen, provide that into my lungs, then I'm stuck in a pretty anthropocentric worldview. And that's not one that feels good to me anymore. And I just got some raised eyebrows from Ryan. So I'm gonna assume <laughs> that's my time. Yeah. This is a lot to digest. So thank you to Steven and Jason and Elaine. And so while uh, Stephen wants us to ditch nouns and the divine, evidently, and Jason wants us to get rid of soul and Elaine wants us to embrace wreckage, 
I want these three to come up here because you've deconstructed a lot of people's worlds just in the matter of 15, 15, to 15 minutes. 45 total. So you guys come on up here. I have a few questions for you from the audience. And if you have any more questions, please give them to Janelle or write them on Facebook. And we have about 25 minutes to roll through these. And, and I think the, due to the interdependence of what we're talking about here, the question that may be, to, be toward Jason or Stephen or Elaine is really to the three of you. Yeah? So you can all freely answer whatever question comes up. The death of, of life. We're, let's specifically talk about humans. I don't know if I'm going to get this question right. But what comes after death without a soul? I can only speak for myself at this particular point of point in time. Um, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's, that's literally what it is for me, is because what we do here matters. And the way that I think of things like heaven and hell are through the lens of how we relate to people and how those stories are born by those people, by objects, by subjects, by life around us. And that particular footprint dictates how then we continue to live on. And so the stories that somebody tells about you or about me are, are what matters. I, I just want to be under a tree that when I decompose, it does something nice and not something gnarly. Um, or if gnarly is what it needs to do, then, then take, take that from, from what I am. It might be the hops at the end of the day. Um, but that sense for me of needing an eternity is just not that important anymore. What matters to me is that I treat my daughters well. And that my daughters grow up to be, feel like they have the capacities to live fully in this world and appreciate the stories that they can tell about me. That I treat my spouse well, that I treat my colleagues well. So that the stories are the best possible ones, even though they're not sometimes great. I mean, I, I don't do it all right. And so those things that get perpetuated for me are what matters. Just like I think in process, it's the present that matters because it's the presence that gives birth to what's next. Rather than worrying about what happens when I don't even have a consciousness to care about what happens at the end of the day. And so how can I live compassionately, live with love, live in presently with the people around me as best I can? Because the moment I start worrying about that transaction is the moment it becomes about me instead of becoming about we at the end of the day. So hopefully that is a start, but that's, that's what yeah, it is th for me. Thanks. I was telling Jason afterward, I said, great. I, I just wrote the content <laughs> on soul for our next Denver Brew Theology, and now I have to do a whole nother, who knows? Maybe not, I'll just keep coming. it as is. <laughs> no, you <okay>. should come. <laughs> Any other thoughts on, on the afterlife, death, the soul from the other two? I think that your concept of soulfulness is bodily soulfulness. So the body and the soul are not two separate things, and we have tended to separate the two. Mm -hmm. And the reason why people have difficulty thinking of a very bodily soulfulness is because they think that the two become apart. Uh, but um, we cannot forget that, and perhaps it has to do with how we are integrated and interdependent. 
as you're trying to, as you have been uh, describing. Uh, maybe our materiality transforms into something else, but nonetheless, and that, that's something that is scientific anyway, <laughs> but nonetheless, our soulfulness is material, and it is not just something that it is immaterial. And I think that's the difficulty we have in explaining the soul, because we think that it is just, uh, you know, it's, yeah, we think it's just something apart from our bodies and our experiences that are human and bodily and everything else integrated with our relationships and everything else. So it's just, I think that's why the question always comes up. Well, and I'll, I'll try and add a little bit and we'll see where it goes. Uh, I, it's an interesting question. And it's one that I, I certainly have wondered, you know, what happens after death, right? But it's such a generic question because at least the, the worldview that I grew up in, there was already a future that was, was kind of predetermined and kind of a heaven landscape where a soul could go to. But I think, I, and I'm not as much of a process scholar as I get attributed, but my, my understanding is that, right? Like the future doesn't, there, there is no, the future doesn't actually exist in present tense yet because it's still constantly being made. And so it's an interesting, it's a more interesting exercise to me to think, well, maybe we could, if we could answer that question, we could maybe answer it for soul of, for people who have already died because that has already happened. So that's now being brought up into the present moment. But my death has yet happened yet, as, at least as of this sentence. And so I don't know what's going to happen after that because there's a whole bunch of other events which are going to compile together, which is going to shape what comes after that? Thank you. I, I, think, I think we've all just figured it out now. Now, I think we often assume that people have this basic knowledge, and I think this question right here is going to be for a lot of people in the room. What is process theology? If you can do this in just a few minutes, that would be really helpful. So out of the three of you, who's got the best answer? <laughs> I'm going to let you go first. That's <laughs> So that, that you can build on no, that. Okay, no problem. <laughs> I, went, I went first last time, so I, I want to give sure. equality and equity to this guys. So I think that the, the way that I explain it is like an organic, organic theology. It's organic because it is uh, constantly, uh, con because it is something that is in process or is in movement and changing and transforming. It is also organic because it's drawing from uh, all of all of its environment, it what you call a continuum. Whether it is things that are visible or things that are invisible, that does not mean that they are not existing. But also, can is organic because if you think about it from an indigenous perspective, it is ancestral. You you are, um, you know, things are passed passed on and and integrated from from one uh, from one. Uh, it's not essence from one, it's not thing either. It is from one, uh, let's just call it particles, and that probably is easier, uh, and they are being shared. So it is technically what you can say, an organismic kind of way of understanding the cosmos and the relationship of God with the cosmos and the relationship within the cosmos of things in, in the cosmos. Any, any other additions? <laughs> I, I really like the word organic in there. 
in the sense that uh, it's, it really is a, a changing. It's something new that's becoming. So I would think that a process theology uh, is, is really a way to understand theology, right? Our, our understanding of, of div- the divine in a way that allows the divine to also become. That, that the divine isn't a static, fixed entity that is impenetrable, but the divine is like, well, is in a way that we experience and become something new. The divine is also doing that. And so we have this organic, organic relationship to a divine that's also becoming something new. And I would echo, I mean, what both of you said, just, I mean, it's, it's beautiful the way you talk about it. Um, for me, I, I came to process because of working as a therapist. Um, and the, and the, the quick story from that is that I worked very early in my career as a therapist with a person who um, was death, had been, death and had been sexually abused by her father. Um, and was not believed by anybody about her abuse since she was in her 40s, had a hysterectomy, had a number of physical problems off of that abuse, and no theological answer that I had worked anymore. And so I came to to process out of a a desperation to find something to to soothe my own soul, or I don't have one, so it doesn't really matter (laughs) anymore, but... um, to soothe how I thought about that time and that experience. Um, and, and, and what I found in, in process to me was an experience of the divine that actually cared about what happens in the world versus an experience of the divine that set the world in order, which is what I'd been taught as a Calvinist. And so to me, having a, a, an experience of what the divine is as we gather in a space together and be around one another and become around one another mattered there. And that, that to me is, as someone who works still in that clinical frame, what process is about. It's about how we connect and how we uh, understand and feel and experience where the divine is connecting with us in those spaces such that change can happen. And it's possible. Thanks. Hopefully this clarifies quite a bit. Yep. I, you know, we, we, we walk into this whole open relational theology deal and like, yeah, we just assume everybody has read a process book. Stupid us. Uh, and Jason, it's okay. Everybody has uh, made the choice to drift into Calvinism here and there. It happened to me too. It's okay. All right. So this next question says that, that you all, this is all y'all, You've talked about what open and relational process means to you personally and individually. So what does this mean socio-politically today? This is about the systems that are at work in our country and in our world. And a lot of people ask this question, but this is the easiest way to ask it. Read the question again. (laughs) (laughs) Which which word are you supposed to spell out of the question? Is that right? Let me ask it it in a a different way. You've talked about what it means to you personally, and I, and I love the fact, I mean, Stephen, uh, your experience, especially as a farmer and a gardener, uh, that's, that's awesome for you, 
specifically, and I know that has an effect on all of us when we hear that. What about the systems of our world at large, socioeconomically, politically? We live in a capitalistic society. Last I checked, we're at Blue Moon right now, drinking beer from Miller Coors. It's part of a system. So what does process have to do with the systems of the world? Well, I think, uh, I think what I was, the analogy I was making to agriculture where we have the choice to force our will of dominance over another individual, or we can create an environment where life can flourish, that that is not unique to plant root and bacteria. And, and I think that really does have ramifications, that, that, that within a process framework or in a relational framework, we get to make these, we, we're constantly making these decisions. Am I going to strong arm my way to get what I want? I could do that. And there's effects to that. Or am I willing to participate in a system, create a system, advocate for a system that allows life to flourish? And I certainly don't know what it's like to be soil bacteria so it's not a stretch for me to say, I don't know what it's like to be a trans woman of color. Not that I'm at all making that comparison as if they're the same, but it shouldn't be hard for me to advocate for the life of one and, and then extend my advocacy for the life of another because I'm choosing to live in relationship, even if it's a relationship that I don't fully understand. But in, for me, adopting a more process or a more relational way of understanding the world, it comes down to, am I seeing life in places? And what's my responsibility to life? Or am I seeing inert things, things that where my will can be forced upon and it's up to me? So to me, this is a constant question in a, in a process framework is, are we seeing life or not? Happy to go where you can go. No, I was just, I would, I, I want to echo what you just said, because I believe that, um, and this, this may sound a little bit, uh, um, he, uh, in process there is a, a use of the term, there is a use of the, the name Caesar quite a bit. And, and the Caesar uh, is the example of imperialism and the manner in which uh, we have guided our lives in such a way that we um, have set it as an example uh, as how we need to rule, uh, how we need to, um, how governments should, you know, should conduct uh, themselves or, or how Christianity should, uh, should be modeled after. But uh, there is a different model that process um, is is seeking to promote, which is what you call the Galilean principle, and the Galilean principle is the one that uh, is, is you know related to it's what what um, has been stated so far in the sense that it is not by force, it is not. Um, it is not about domination, it is not about totalitarianism, and it is not seeking to demonize or, 
or hamper the well-being of another individual so that my well-being can be established. And so it is it is so that how can we uh, create the conditions and support forms of government that actually are seeking uh, the well-being of its, you know, its its fellows, uh, rather than trying to limit their well-being or to seek the well-being only of a few. And I think this is key because, um, and I, without promoting one thing or the other, we really have to gauge which forms of government are truly uh, being in, be, trying to force um, a view that really hampers the life for for fellows in our country and beyond the and at the borders of our country um, so at, at the beginning of every process class the, the, the beginning session of that class um, I tell all the students that I'm teaching that quarter that I don't care if you become a process theologian at the end of this and it's not that I don't care about them but I, I'm not here to coerce them, convince them, evangelize them towards a particular perspective. But what you, you do have to have at the end of this is a theology or a philosophy or a meaning system that is life-giving for you and the people around you. It cannot just be life-giving for you because you and I are going to have some conversations at the end of the day because that's not, that's not a life-giving system. And so all of this meaning-oriented stuff that we carry into the world is, is what I call, it, it's the background noise, it's the static that follows us everywhere we go and, and imparts interpretive things. It helps us interpret things, it helps us make sense of things, it helps us make meaning in space. And, and if we're only in it for ourselves, then, then that's not a life-giving, life-reinforcing theology or philosophy or meaning system. And so my mentor, Larry Graham, wrote a book, Care of Persons, Care of Worlds. He talks about the idea of psychosystemic views of the world. When you see someone hurting, it is most likely part of a larger system of oppression, marginalization, and violence. And as such, it is our responsibility, having borne witness to that in relationship, to advocate for change. And, and to be a part of the change that needs to happen so that, that that person and others like them can experience what it means to live in a life-giving way and in a, re a community that reinforces those life-giving spaces. So that's where I'm going to go. I'm really proud of the, the, this process here, that we are on time. I mean, this very, is impressive. Very Presbyterian of you, this, watch it. This does not happen often. Uh, so thank you all again. I appreciate it.